you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I want us to start out today by looking at the four or five verses that have led up to our passage today. Uh, because our, our passage today is very controversial. Uh, it does make a lot of people mad when you just kind of leave it by itself, but Scripture has to be read in context. And so we want to see what leads up to this point that, Paul's, or that John's going to make for us today. Starting in verse 28 of chapter 2, John writes this. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, as Christ, is pure. And this leads us into a very controversial passage. Last week, last Saturday... My wife and I decided to embark on a 15-year journey together. We bought a puppy. Uh, We brought her over after the service last week. Some of you got to meet her. Uh, She's a Boston Terrier, and if you know anything about Boston Terriers, you know that they are extremely friendly dogs. Uh, The breed is also referred to as the American Gentleman because it's so friendly, and they're also very intelligent. what makes them so intelligent, I think, is the fact that they are so curious. They are, believe me, after spending a week with one, they are extremely curious dogs and very active. And you put all this together, and you have a breed that can be trained fairly easily, but it requires a lot of patience from the owner. And maybe it's because I'm a pastor, although I don't think so, because I don't think being a pastor makes me super spiritual or anything. But as my patience has been tested over and over this past week with this dog, who just seems to want to love me, honestly, and and be my best friend, I'm, I'm reminded of God's incredible patience with me. I know that my, uh, my patience for my dog is a lot shorter than his patience is for me. His patience with me is infinitely greater than the patience I have for my dog, and yet at the same time, I know that my heart is far more resistant toward God than my dog's heart is toward me, which when I think about it, just it gives me a deeper understanding, a deeper insight, maybe a deeper appreciation for God's grace, God's incredible patience with me. It's like putting his, his grace under a microscope, owning a puppy. Try it sometime, uh, or yeah, if you want to have your patience tested. But with all the training that we've been doing this past week, I've been reminded over and over again of the fact that my sin is incompatible with my profession, incompatible with the Christian life. And believe me, I I wrestle with it. And I am tempted by it. And I am enticed by it. And sometimes I feel that it gets the best of me. And sometimes I wonder if I really hate it or if I do everything I can 
to prevent it from taking an inch in my heart knowing that it'll take a mile. And I know that I'm not the only one who wrestles with this. I know I'm not the only one who struggles with these types of, of questions, like Paul, Romans chapter 7. You know, we all, we all struggle with doing what we do not want to do and not doing what we do want to do. But for almost the first 1900 years of Christianity, the church has upheld the idea that Scripture clearly sets forth a standard both for believing and for behaving, recognizing that the two are inseparably linked. Unfortunately, this has changed if you look at the past hundred years as the church has focused more on the size of the congregation, things like the size of the congregation, the number of people who are coming forward for the altar call at the end, and so on and so forth, than they are on the health of the congregation. The size for the American church, let's be honest, for a lot of churches, it's more important than the health. And there have been very, very few who have held the line. A.W. Tozer was one of them. He wrote this. He said, quote, We cannot afford to let down our Christian standards just to hold the interest of people who want to go to hell and still belong to a church. End quote. And yet that is precisely what the modern church has done. He saw it happening too. Many, many in the modern church have essentially vetoed the testimony, the clear testimony of Scripture, and lowered the expected standards of Christian living, of practical Christian living. But the truth is very simple. The truth is that we will behave in accordance with what we believe. We behave in accordance with what we believe. How many of you guys drove to church this morning? A lot of you. How many of you guys put your key in the ignition to start your car? Okay, or, or maybe you have an ignition button or something like that. Why, why do you put your key in? Why do you push the button? Because you believe that that's going to start your car. If you didn't believe that that was going to start your car, would you do it? Of course you wouldn't. You believed something, so you acted upon it. Namely, you believed that turning the key or pushing the button would start your vehicle. How many of you would have tried anything else? How many of you tried something else first? Yeah, nobody, because you didn't think anything else would work. And this is how the human psyche works. Our beliefs result in behavior. Our beliefs result in behavior. With that said, it goes without question that wrong belief will lead to wrong behavior. And the Christian faith is no different. It works the same way with the Christian faith. What you believe will bear fruit in how you behave. And sadly, when somebody denies the importance of certain doctrinal truths, it shouldn't be surprising when those people refuse to recognize the importance of living and behaving and acting in a way that is going to glorify God either. And this is what we see happening all over the place. These are the Christian stories that make news. It is widespread in our culture. And I would even be so bold to say that it is historically unprecedented that there's been such a downplay on doctrine. And the result in our deeds is disastrous. 
as churches have tried and tried all these various worldly models to grow their numbers, they've downplayed certain crucial doctrines. Quite honestly, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is almost entirely absent in the American church, as is the doctrine of sin as it relates to the Christian life. You wouldn't want to talk about sin if you want to grow your church. Unfortunately, that is the harsh reality of many, many, many churches in our culture. As we continue our study in the book of 1 John, we should know by now that this is, a, this is a book about right and wrong behavior. This is a book about how a Christian should be bearing fruit or, or shouldn't be bearing fruit. And some of the behaviors that John has told us that we should expect to see in the life of the true Christian to varying degrees include things like confession, repentance from sin, which is another doctrine that's almost entirely absent in churches today, the doctrine of repentance. But of course, if you're not talking about sin, why would you talk about repentance? Walking in obedience to Christ is another one that John has talked about, walking in obedience and thereby abiding in him, loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, abstaining from the love of the world, growing in practical righteousness as we purify ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in our passage today, John's going to present us with something of a paradox. Back in chapter 1, he warned us that anybody who would say that they have no sin is a liar. The implication is we, we all have sin, and we all need to be regularly confessing and repenting. But now he continues, and, write, and he writes this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one, this is where it gets controversial, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We should remember that contrary to what many commentators and pastors might teach about this book. This is not a book about strong faith versus weaker faith or faith that leads to obedience versus faith that doesn't lead to obedience. You'd, you'd be amazed at some of, the, some of the explanations of this passage that some commentators have come up with. No, the Bible never once recognizes a faith as legitimate that does not lead to obedience. Conversely, nor does it recognize an obedience that doesn't flow from legitimate faith in Christ. No, this book, this book of 1 John, is about true faith versus false faith. As John MacArthur says, quote, The dichotomy that John presents is not deeper faith versus shallower faith, but rather a saving faith versus a non-saving one. End quote. There's a very good reason that every single one of the New Testament authors, all of them, continually placed a very high degree of emphasis on repentance. It's because the regular practice of repentance is necessary for avoiding lawlessness. Now, what is repentance? Some would say that it's not necessary for the believer. The believer doesn't have to repent because, as they'll argue, it's, it's a work. And, you know, that's, a, that's opposed to grace. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, so you don't need to repent. 
Others would basically make the argument that to repent is the same thing as just having faith. In which case, obviously, being saved uh, doesn't have to lead to a changed life. One commentator was writing about how, you know, Paul, or John's just presenting an ideal here. This isn't something that the believer is actually held to. So, in that case, the believer doesn't have to have a changed life. A changed life doesn't prove anything in that case. It doesn't have to affect their behavior one way or the other. This is not how any of the biblical authors understood repentance or the Christian life. It's something that we have to do. Repenting is something that we have to do regularly. It's ongoing. What does it mean? It means to turn away from something, to turn and go in a different direction. That's why Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, he said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We studied that the past couple weeks. Therefore, or so, in light of that truth, be zealous and repent. What do they need to repent of? A lot of things. They're the church that Jesus said, you know, you're not cold, you're not hot, you're lukewarm, so I want to spit you out of my mouth. So there were a lot of things that they had to repent of, including complacency towards sin. But the truth is, as John has pointed out for us, all of us continue to sin. And it's easy for us to become complacent about it Two, if for no other reason than because we are bombarded by it in our culture. We are constantly surrounded by it. We're enticed through commercials and TV and all that stuff. Remember, John made it clear in the first chapter of this book that none of us can make the claim of being without sin. But that's why repentance is necessary for us, regularly. If we were to stop sinning, which we can't completely. But if we were to stop sinning, obviously we wouldn't have anything to confess or repent of. When we practice sin, John's saying we practice lawlessness. And that's something that John has been metaphorically warning us about since the very first chapter when he warned us against walking in the darkness. Walking in the darkness means practicing lawlessness. We saw that walking in the darkness basically means living as if there's not a God to whom we will one day be held accountable. It means living by our own rules, determining for ourselves what is morally right and wrong, morally good and evil, doing what seems right in our eyes, just like in Judges. And John's now more blatantly driving the point home for us. We cannot, as Christians, we cannot live in a way that reflects complacency or apathy toward the moral boundaries that God has set for us. And many Christians will say, you know, when it comes to being tempted with a certain sin, they'll say, well, you know, I, I don't see what, what the harm is. You know, it's not actually going to hurt any, anybody or anything. You know, I'm, I'm not sure why God would even put this, you know, this command in the Bible. I'm not sure why this is, you know, a moral violation. A couple of years ago, uh, as, as Christina and I were leading the youth group in a curriculum um, called the Purity Code, which was about maintaining sexual purity, 
Uh, we, we were talking at one point about all these, these practical reasons to avoid uh, sexual immorality, avoid uh, fornication. Uh, we discussed, for example, the, the human tendency to compare uh, one thing with another, one experience with another, uh, comparing your spouse with somebody else, or the danger of, of catching a disease, or the danger of getting pregnant outside of marriage. And these are all great practical reasons for maintaining sexual purity. But as I went through these, I, I thought, you know, the most obvious one is missing. And that is we have to maintain our sexual purity because God has told us to maintain our sexual purity. Period. Isn't that good enough? I mean, shouldn't that be the end of the story right there? You know, there will be times, there will be times when it's very obvious why God has given us a certain moral boundary. But there will be times when it won't be so obvious to us, at least not immediately. And in those times when we are tempted and we can't think of an immediate reason not to do it, after all, it's not going to hurt anybody. We need to have this to fall back on. Don't do it. Simply because God has commanded us not to do it. If we keep that reason first and foremost in our hearts and our minds for not sinning, it should negate, it should veto any excuse or justification that we can come up with for sin in the moment which is how we work, right? When we're tempted, we start, we start trying to justify it. And then we find a moral boundary, and, and what do we do next? We try to figure out a way over that, or maybe we can't. Maybe we just figure, well, I'm going through it anyway. We're thinking, well, you know, it won't hurt anyone, or everybody else is doing it, or it's not as bad as what so-and-so is doing, or it's not as bad as if I were to such-and-such. In his word, God has set moral boundaries for his people. He has given us laws to follow. John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And this word lawlessness literally means no law. No law. Anomia is the Greek word. And there are actually very famous Christian teachers and authors out there who are anomians. Immediately, this should remind us of what Jesus said about lawlessness. You guys see me go back to this passage so many times. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness, anomia. It does not matter what a person professes with their lips. If they profess Christ with their lips and yet practice unrestrained lawlessness continually in their lives, whatever profession came out of their lips is absolutely meaningless. It is an empty profession. Jesus said, Luke chapter 6, 46, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? 
Why do you make this profession with your lips when your deeds are way out over here? He's saying that it's oxymoronic, it's a, it's a contradiction to confess his lordship with our lives, or with our lips, but not with our lives. Right belief will lead to right behavior. If we truly believe that Christ is our Lord, we will do as he says. To refuse to do what he says is to practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is living as if God has not given us a law, as if Christ has not given us any commands. And John tells us right here in chapter 3, verse 4, that that's sin. But what does it mean to make a practice of sin? To keep sinning. John has written this in the present tense, indicating that it's an ongoing occurrence. It's something that's maybe even a habit. It's, it's habitual. Something that has not been confessed and repented of. At least not fully. It reveals something very serious in our hearts. Something seriously wrong in our hearts. It reveals an attitude of enmity, of hatred, and of rebellion toward God. Since, as Paul says in Romans 8-7, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot In other words, everyone who repeatedly, continually, habitually practices sin is a worker of lawlessness. Talking about the same sin over and over and over again, never turning away from it. The true Christian, however, does not practice lawlessness. We do not behave as if there is no law. What did John say back in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4? He said, and by this, we know that we have come to know him, come to know Christ, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You see, the true Christian does fall short, but the true Christian is grieved to realize that they have not been faithful. That's why Paul told the Corinthians that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief is a grief which flows from the sin. Worldly grief flows from the consequences. Godly grief leads to salvation. Worldly grief leads to death. So while all of us sin, all of us continue to cross these moral boundaries that God has placed for us. We have to see how important it is that we engage in warfare against the tendency to make a habit of it. To just keep doing it over and over and over again. John reminds his audience here, and and us, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. A lot of self-professing Christians in our culture are perfectly fine and more than happy to sing songs about how Jesus took away our sins, but then they continue to practice their sin regularly, habitually, unrepentantly. Now, you might have noticed that I have a, a bag of garbage up here today. 
And this bag represents the trash that I should have handed over to the trash collection on Friday. They came by on Friday. They did pick up my trash, but they didn't take this because I kept it for myself. They represent, or this represents, what happens when we refuse to let go of our sin. You see, the gospel starts with the premise that we are all sinners. That is, we all carry trash around with us. We haul it around. It's disgusting. It's filthy. It's repulsive to a holy and righteous God. And yet God, in his infinite love, his infinite wisdom, his infinite sovereignty, provided the solution for this trash that we haul around by sending his son to bear the wrath that we deserved for our sin in order that he could redeem a people for himself. Verse 5 tells us he came to take our sin away. It doesn't say that he came to take our guilt and shame away. Although he did that. You can, you can, you can uh, you know, look at other parts of Scripture and, and definitely see that he does take our guilt and shame away. But that's not what John says. What John's saying here is that if you are a sin hoarder, that is, if you are keeping the trash, you're not giving it to Jesus because you might want to go back and, well, boy, that pizza was really good. Man, I, yeah, I bet I could get some scraps out of here. I bet I can enjoy this all over again. That's what it means to be a sin hoarder. That's basically the picture of a sin hoarder. That's what they do. They don't let go of their sin. They don't hand it over. Not indeed, anyway. They may, they may with their lips. Jesus, I, I surrender all. But, but I, I surrender some. How about that? And what John's saying here is that if you're a sin hoarder, if you're, if you're refusing to let go of your sin, refusing to give it to Jesus, then maybe you never knew him. You never knew him if you're keeping it for yourself. Maybe you've never handed your trash over to Jesus. Maybe you just wanted to hold on to it, you know, so that you could come back to it and enjoy it a second or third or fourth time or so on and so forth. If that's the case, John is saying you you never knew him. You never knew him. He doesn't say that you used to know him and, and, and then you didn't. He doesn't say that you were in Christ and then you you walked away. As we've seen, that's not the way it works. He says you never knew him. And some commentators try to force the argument that Jesus doesn't actually take sin away, but that it just means that he makes forgiveness available. It does mean that. Again, same, same thing. It does mean that he makes forgiveness available. But don't stop there. It doesn't just mean that. It must mean more than that, logically speaking. If it doesn't mean that he also literally takes sin away from us, weaning us from it as only he can, then verse 6 here doesn't make any sense at all. Think about that for a minute. If it doesn't mean that he literally will take sin away from us, the practice of sin away from us, weaning us from it, then verse 6 doesn't make any sense. And again, this is not to say that true Christians don't sin. We do. But this is the paradox. John chapter 1 verse 9 tells us that we all do sin, and now John's saying that the true Christian doesn't practice sin, doesn't continue practicing sin. So what we have to understand here is that John's making a distinction between sin and continual sin, habitual sin, unrepentant, unrestrained sin. There is absolutely forgiveness where there is confession and repentance. Maybe the question is whether or not there is forgiveness of sins that we freely and unrepentantly 
engage in. See, prior to being born again, prior to regeneration, we all sinned both by nature and by choice. Nature and choice, that's fallen man. Post-regeneration, that is after God has caused us to be born again, after he has replaced our hearts of stone with living flesh that can respond to him in obedience, we have a new nature, but we still have choices to make. We, we, ha- we have unrestrained free choice, unlike fallen man. We have to know that no true Christian can be forced to sin against their will. Nobody can force us to sin. It isn't because of our nature anymore. That nature is gone. It's been replaced. It's, we've got a new nature. The problem is that we have weak willpower. We have weak willpower. The, the spirit is strong. The flesh is weak. And the enemy of God is constantly bombarding us with temptations and enticements to make us willing to partake of sin. And with that said, every time we sin, it's a choice. That's why Paul said to the Romans, Romans chapter 6, Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Note the present imperative tense, let not indicating it's something that you either allow or you don't. You either let it or you don't. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 15, this is very important. Verse 15, he says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Good question, Paul. What's the answer? By no means. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? And this leads up to him saying in verse 19, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's pre-regeneration, So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. The idea of being a Christian convert and yet habitually practicing sin was a foreign concept to the authors of the New Testament. It was as ridiculous and as obscene to them as, as me, you know, holding on to my trash so that I can, you know, enjoy the, the scraps, you know, a couple days later. Mm, that, you know, that salmon my wife cooked a couple nights ago sure was good. I bet it's still pretty good. We'd say that's disgusting and, and yeah, r- ridiculous. And that's what the New Testament authors would have said about continuing in sin. So are we forgiven for sins that we don't confess and repent of? I've got a better question for you. Why would a person in whom God dwells not confess and repent of sin? If God dwells in us, and he does dwell within each and every believer, and if he's prompting us and disciplining us in order that we might grow in Christ's likeness, and he is, you know, that means to to grow in Christ, 
personal holiness and personal practical righteousness, then how is it even possible that a person would refuse to confess and repent of sin? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It goes right back to the question Jesus asked. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? See, Jesus wasn't expressing frustration at their disobedience. He was expressing confusion at the incompatibility of their profession and their practice. The incompatibility of their beliefs and their behavior. Their supposed doctrine and their actual deeds. Solomon made a brilliant observation or two in his lifetime. And one of my personal favorites is this. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And I I love that, uh, part of what I love about this is that Solomon just gives us this absolutely disgusting and, and repulsive image. If you've ever seen a dog do this, you know what I'm talking about. He doesn't say that repeating our folly is like, you know, a, a beautiful butterfly, you know, returning to the, the, the same, you know, edge of a rose that it landed on before. He doesn't say that. He could have, but he doesn't. He doesn't say that, you know, repeating our, our folly is like a comet that, you know, appears every 75 or 76 years, you know, like Haley's Comet does. No, he doesn't give us any beautiful imagery here. He says that making the same mistake over and over and over again, making the same, committing the same sin over and over again in an habitual manner is like a dog that vomits and then goes back to enjoy it a second time. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but I think we all know that it, once that dog goes back to enjoy it a second time, he's going to enjoy it a third time too. Speaking to Ezekiel about the new covenant, which was at the time yet to come, God told him, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, he said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The testimony of all of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is that while, yes, we will stumble, yes, we will fall, we will struggle, and sometimes we will even fail in the war against sin, those who are truly born again of God will turn away from habitual sin. True Christians will not repeatedly, consciously, and intentionally violate the commands of Christ or the law of God. And this is where we have to be very careful. Sometimes we have to, to, you know, to step back and look at the big picture. Sometimes we zoom in a little bit too close. Because if we zoom in too closely, it may appear that someone is walking unrepentantly in sin. But if somebody's walk is, is three steps forward and, and two steps back, anybody ever had a week like that? A month like that? A year like that? Three steps forward, two steps back? All you need to do is zoom in so closely that all you see is the two steps back. And you can very easily fall under a false impression. Now, if you're looking at investing in a stock, do you look at what it's done just over the past day or two or three days? Or do you look back over the course of the past year, five years, or ten years? You look at all of it, right, Eric? You look at all of it. Because the more you zoom in and out on the performance chart of a stock, the better idea you can have of what to expect from that particular stock or or investment. 
And of course, past performance, I have to put this as a, as a former Series 7. No, I'm just kidding. I, I used to be a stockbroker. Past performance of an investment is never an indication of future performance. You get the point. The same holds true of sin, however, and repentance in the life of the believer. Our past apparent faithfulness is never a 100% sure indication of future faithfulness. We are held by grace. And there are people who make professions and walk away. Past performance is never an indication of future faithfulness. If we walk away from the faith, never to return, there is reason for great, great concern. And so we have to examine our lives regularly, but also in light of the past. Zoom in, zoom out. Small picture, big picture. And as you zoom in, maybe what you see is that you've really struggled with a certain sin lately. But the question is, how does that compare to to where you were a year ago? How how does it compare to where you were five years ago, ten years ago, prior to regeneration? Because every single one of us is a work in progress. Unfortunately, the chart doesn't just look like this. It looks like this, you know, it's like all over the place. But that's precisely what we should expect to see. Progress. We're a work in progress, and that's what we should see. Now, in the passages that led up to our current passage, John was discussing one of the great hopes that the Christian can cling to, and that is the day that we stand before Christ and we are suddenly made perfectly righteous and holy in our conduct as he is perfectly righteous and holy The idea of Christ destroying sin and causing us to walk blamelessly and perfectly before him is more than just a future hope or an ideal way for Christians to live. It's intended to be more and more and more of a present reality as well until that day when God completes his work. John wants us to understand that, yes, Christians will be completely delivered from the presence and the practice of sin when God's work in us is completed. One day, when we're glorified, when we stand before him. But in the meantime, it is impossible for the true Christian convert to see absolutely no positive progress in their practice of sin versus their practice of righteousness. If the chart, you know, zooming out, if the chart doesn't look like this, if it looks, you know, kind of like that and going down, long term, there's... Reason for great concern. Now before we we wrap this up, we have to remember that this doesn't mean that we're saved by practicing righteousness. That is, our works don't cause our salvation. Instead, our salvation causes good works. It results in good works such as growing in faith, growing in confession, growing in repentance, growing in practical righteousness. So everyone who sins breaks the law, and everyone breaks it. Everyone who breaks the law stands condemned before a just and holy God in need of a Savior who has not broken the law. And only Jesus never broke the law of God. Everyone who continues to sin has never seen Jesus, and they never knew Jesus, and he never knew them either. Conversely, those who stop sinning habitually, where you see progress, where it's not like you're a dog returning to your vomit over and over again, bear solid evidence to salvation. 
And this is much more than just an ideal that John is presenting. He doesn't say no one who abides in him should keep on sinning. No, he says no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. As one church father famously said, to sin is human, but to persevere in sin is not human, but altogether satanic. The Christian life is all about learning to abide in Christ, walking in the light as he is the light. And in him, there is no darkness. There is grace. There is wonderful and amazing grace when we fall, when we stumble, but there must be progress in the life of the true Christian. Grace is not a license to just sin unrestrainedly, freely, because sin has no hold on the Christian. Using Paul's metaphor of, of having sin as a, as a master and us being slaves to it, it was once our master, but we were redeemed by God. We were freed from our old master. Therefore, sin no longer rightfully dictates our actions. Our old master will come back and tempt us to obey him, to act in accordance with his wishes. But we have a choice to make, whether we will serve sin or serve righteousness. Our behavior reveals our beliefs. And the most important question I think anybody can be asked is this, do you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you really believe that Jesus is, is both Lord and Savior of your life? Do you, do you know what it means for him to be Lord? You see, everybody, everybody wants a Savior. Everybody recognizes that there's, there's a problem in the human race, and we need to be saved from it. Everybody wants a Savior, but not everyone wants a Lord. That is, not everyone wants a master. Not everyone wants somebody else calling the shots. That was a big branch. Not everybody wants somebody else calling the shots, telling us what we should or shouldn't do. Even the demons believe that he's God, and they shudder. And yet they don't want him as Lord. Listen, there will be scores and scores of people in hell who knew that Jesus is Lord without submitting to his lordship. If we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, it must be reflected in our actions. And that has to start with a willingness to confess our sin, to repent of our sin, to turn away from our habitual sin, to stop doing it, to make sure that we're not practicing it habitually because a life that hasn't been changed hasn't been saved. Sin always brings death and darkness. Jesus brings light and life. And to partake of this life that he brings, that he offers, and to live in the light, there is no other option. We must learn, and it is a learning process, we must learn to yield to him and to surrender more and more of ourselves to him, confessing and repenting regularly of our sin, truly turning away from it, making an effort, striving to let it go in order that we may abide in Christ, bearing 
much good fruit as we make progress in learning to live in a way that demonstrates the reality of him abiding in us. Let's pray. Our Father, this, uh, this passage is a little bit scary for many of us. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would shed light into our hearts and show us, show us the sins that we need to turn from. Grant us true repentance, Lord, that we may turn from our sin, that we may demonstrate that sin does not have a hold in our lives, but that our lives belong completely to you. Show us the progress, Lord, that we may gain a sense of assurance, that we may draw close to you as a child to a father, broken over sin when we sin, knowing that there is forgiveness through the shed blood of your Son on our behalf. Teach us, Lord, to walk more and more blamelessly before you, that we may be totally different from the world around us, that we may bear good fruit, that we may bear testimony to the fact that you have done something miraculous in us. You have taken us from death to life. And the proof is that we're submitting to your lordship. We see you as Lord and Savior. Teach us to glorify you through our deeds not just with our lips, but also with our lives. Not just with our doctrine, but with our deeds. We love you, and we live for you, because you redeemed us and we belong to you. For your glory, in Christ's name we pray. It was so much this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.